There we are, Sally. A very nice choice there. Always uh, on my mind. And coming up soon is the uh, Elvis on tour box set, um, which I'm really looking forward to. I mean, I've heard a lot of it before, obviously, but that might give us some more of an insight into Elvis. Absolutely. Now, we were just talking about things uh, while that song was on, and one of the questions that I, I wanted to ask you was, uh, what is your opinion or do you have one on uh, Colonel Parker? Because obviously he's influence on Elvis was so strong. Um, how, how do you think that relationship went? Uh, again, you know, I try to stay away from the blame game and there are people who hate the Colonel and people who love the Colonel and people who think there wouldn't have been an Elvis without the Colonel. Um, again, I try to stay away from extreme statements too. I think there would have been an Elvis without the Colonel. He was, it's not like, um, Elvis wasn't singing at all and that he met the Colonel. I mean, Elvis was very popular below the Mason Dixon line and then he met the Colonel. So the Colonel already had something pretty amazing to work with. Right. Mm. Um, and I think that's important to remember um, in terms of the relationship. Again, I think I understand it more by looking through that lens of poverty and provider. I think when they meet um, the Colonel and the Colonel promises to make a million dollars, you know, and to advance his career, uh, Elvis is thinking about, being a provider, pulling his family out of poverty. And at that point, he doesn't really even see himself maybe as a creative genius, right? He's still learning the ropes of being a superstar. So I think he puts the Colonel in charge of the money. We all know the Colonel knows money. <laughs> I'm sure they had confidence in that too, the Presleys. And we know that they made a generational leap that should have taken multiple generations wealth-wise. And they did it in one year. Yeah. There's no way they could have understood that amount of money. They never could have understood what to do with it, how to make it, where to put it, like a concert ticket, like none of it. They couldn't have handled any of that. So they put the colonel in charge of all of it. And that was probably a good move because they did not have the skill set to do that. Um, so I think they make that agreement and I think it works for a long time. However, Elvis emerges past being a provider. He pulls his family out of poverty and then he realizes himself, I think, he gets more confident in being the a creative genius that he is. And in that sense, the Colonel becomes stifling, mm. right? So we see that when, you know, Elvis maybe can't get the best songs and he's not recording what he wants to record because they can't get the rights and make the most money off of the song. So when Elvis does go against the Colonel and he says, I'm recording this no matter what, that's when he does his best work. It just is. So there's so much truth in that. And I think we have to be honest about both, right? I don't, I don't think he's all good or all bad. It's, it's kind of like an up and down, you know, situation. There's been, um, there's been books about the Colonel before. Would you entertain doing a bit more research and doing something like that? I would love to learn more about the Colonel. I'd like to be more definitive about him because he is so controversial. I'd like to say, you know what? He was bad for Elvis or he was good for Elvis. And, and maybe I can't, maybe the truth is that he was both. And I'd like to be um, a little more firm on that too, I think, um, by looking at each contract, right? And each situation and just delving into that a little bit more. Um, I think it'd be great fun just to, just, you know, have a, a, share a bottle of wine with a bunch of Elvis experts like yourself and just rehash that. Like keep, but what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And see where you land as a group because that relationship, both uh, with what happened to Elvis uh, with his, you know, and, and his level of fame and the creative decisions that were made, the films, the shows, you know, one of the things I have a hard time getting over all the time is the CBS special at the end. Why would the Colonel make that deal? Why would the Colonel put him on TV? It's clear he's sick. It's clear he's sick. Why would the Colonel do that to him? And that's one thing I can't get over. Um, so I just like to put all that together and really analyze it. So I don't know about a book, but I do want to spend more time really you know, delving into that. 
you were talking about the blame game earlier, and and for me, it's it usually ends up with him for yeah. thing, for things like signing seven year contracts and putting all of us into these ridiculously long Vegas stints of of four weeks, two shows a night. But you actually said something interesting while we were chatting that Elvis could have said no, but he, he enjoyed that working hard, didn't he? I think Elvis was a workaholic a little bit. And we don't like, you know, we don't tend to give him that permission because we do think of him being stuck up in his bedroom, you know, from time to time. There's all those stories, right? But when he works, he works harder than anybody. And who else ever played Vegas for 30 days straight, two shows a night? And the touring he does. When he's touring on Saturday and Sunday, he's often doing two shows in various cities. Elvis was a workaholic. We know he wanted his music to be perfect. We know he wanted those bad movies to be as good as they could be. Yeah. And and some of those scripts are horrible, but I think it also proves what a good actor he was because they're still watchable. You know, it's still amazing to watch him on screen. He did a great job with a lot of scripts he was given that were not great scripts, right? Yet he still gave his all. I think Elvis was absolutely a workaholic. I think he was a professional uh, or a perfectionist, excuse me. And I think in some ways that worked with the Colonel because the Colonel wanted to drive him. Mm. Elvis wanted to be driven, you know, and part of that again is being that provider. I want to help. I'm doing this for everybody else. I'm doing this for everybody else. But where that conflict comes is that when Elvis becomes more creatively independent, there is conflict because his manager is financially driven. Mm. The Colonel was not creatively driven. Well, as you said, so well, the CBS special, that's, that's why they, they got paid a ridiculous amount of money and they accepted it. Um, I, right. I mean, in, in one way, it's actually a, a good thing that they did because we've got that on film. So you can see yeah. uh, the, the evidence of what's actually in your book. True. True. And I, I think my biggest, my biggest um, issue with the Colonel is that Elvis... It appears he wasn't allowed to do more interviews. Now, it might be that Elvis didn't want to do more interviews. Maybe Elvis didn't want to put all that personal stuff out there in conversation, right? But I know that Colonel also said, we're not going to do this for free. So that Elvis is never on the car, the Tonight Show, right? He never does those kinds of things that almost every Sinatra was on the Tonight Show. Mm. You know, but Elvis wouldn't do those things because there wasn't money in it, the Colonel believed. So my biggest issue with the Colonel is that because of that way of thinking, we don't have more interviews. And we don't have more words straight out of Elvis's mouth. And that's what we need. That's what I go back to time and again, whether it's a 62 interview or any of the others, the press conferences, whatever. I want to hear what Elvis is saying. Yeah. And it, a, lot so, of time, a lot of times you have to go to the music to, to find that, don't you? Yeah, true. Well, just let me quickly ask you about your, your trips to, uh, to Graceland and, and Memphis. Uh, how, how did you find visiting those? Uh, amazing. You know, I, I would, when I did travel for research with the book and I'm down there probably, you know, four or five, six times a year now, uh, always for Elvis week and for birthday. And then I, several times in between, I'm going next week actually for the Christmas lighting. Uh, but when I did all my research trips, I would travel for, you know, five to 10 days at a time to go and do it all at once. So I wasn't away from home all the time, just in a big chunk of time, one, you know, at a time. So, um, I love to immerse myself there, especially in Tupelo, because Tupelo still has that small town feel. So I loved immersing myself in Tupelo. In Memphis, you know, because it is a big city and all that, it was really more about the people than the places. You know, sitting down and talking to Tish, his nurse, and Marion, and um, all the people who knew Elvis that I went there and interviewed. That is more Memphis and Graceland for me. But of course the house is amazing, right? To be in that place where he lived. And people ask me all the time, why is Elvis still uh, so loved and so iconic? And I think a big part of that is that house. Who else has a place where 
fans can go to connect with other fans, but also to connect with Elvis. Mm. You know, Graceland is a gift for all of us. The fact that it's open to the public, the fact that we can go and gather there. I think that house and that place is is such a big reason why Elvis continues to be Elvis Presley. It's the second most visited house in the country after the White House. Well, see, now you're talking, I'm going to have to get myself going back there because obviously with the pandemic, it's been a, a few years. But what you're talking yeah. about connecting with, with Elvis fans, it, it really is a beautiful family to be uh, to be a part of. I know recently you were in the UK with the Strictly Elvis group who I've, I've been associated yeah. with and they are just crazy Elvis fans, yeah. but brilliant people. That's... <laughs> Nothing like being on the dance floor when they do their I Can Help and working on the building and stuff. It's incredible to see. It's fun and it's inspiring. You know, in so many ways, being in England at the Strictly Elvis Festival felt like I was in Memphis because, hey, we're all here together. We're all celebrating Elvis. We're all enthusiastic about it. But then, you know, the, the England fans take it to another level of the most amazing clothes I've ever seen and then impressive dance moves and the music was amazing they had these great bands you know for the first half of the evening and then amazing Elvis tunes you know the rest of the night and everybody's dancing and and I I can't say enough about how much I loved that experience well you were saying about connecting with Elvis fans what, what are the other groups you've been able to talk to that perhaps you weren't aware of or knew of before yeah, you know, I mean, all sorts of, it's, I have friends around the world now because of Elvis, so I can't necessarily say groups, but like individuals, and of course, I, I'm friends with people who knew Elvis, you know, that's a pretty amazing to, to get those, you oh. know, Merry Christmas from his nurse and from his pilot, and, you know, tell the kids we said hello, and, <laughs> you know, that's a remarkable experience for a kid who grew up reading about these people, mm. and now they're my friends, and I love that, um, but also as a kid who grew up not having other people who loved what I love, um, it's a it's an incredible way to make friends because we go through life making friends with you work with them maybe you live near them you go to church whatever it is and you have to find things that you have in common when you go to Memphis as an Elvis fan you make friends based on what you already have in common and it is such a better way to make friends so I have the most amazing people in my life now I call it Elvis magic <laughs> the way he brings people together from around the world well, you and take I, I'm beyond blessed. Well, you take uh, Tracy and, and Andy from the UK who actually sent me your, your books. Uh, we met on one of the Strictly Elvis tours and within five minutes of, of, of meeting, we were instantly besties. And that's the sort of power it's that amazing. Elvis has. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Ron Strauss, who my second book is about Elvis's pilot, I've been, um, you know, fortunate to have dinner with him many times with large groups of people. Most recently, uh, during the Tupelo Elvis Festival, both him and I were meeting he the book wasn't out yet so he was talking to people and i was signing books at the tupelo hardware store which again is just such an amazing place and i'm so signed books at the tupelo hardware store is an amazing thing and i just cherish that so much it's an amazing place um but one evening we went out to dinner you know 12 of us around the table and every single time ron always is sure to say you know this was such a great evening but if it wasn't for elvis we wouldn't be here and if it wasn't for elvis we wouldn't know each other and, and I love that reminder because it's true. And, and I call it all this magic because it, it's real. It, it's real the way he brings people together. Well, you mentioned uh, Ron Strauss. We should mention this uh, second book. That uh, How long has this one been out? It's the Destined to Fly, the story of, of Ron, Ron Strauss. It had a limited edition release in Elvis Week. We had a book release party in Memphis at Marlowe's there. Um, so that was just a limited, you know, 500 copies. So it officially came out in September. And uh, it's just, it's such a privilege because the first book was successful. It allowed me to tell Ron's story. And Ron's story is really important too, you know, with Elvis and aside from Elvis. It's really a, a slice of Americana. 
Yeah, it's a really a fantastic document on this man, and he, he did so much before Elvis. But the one thing with the Elvis that I liked is how respectful he was uh, uh, towards Elvis, and and that he was he, he was working for him, and he didn't take any photos with Elvis. Uh, he just did his job for him. Yeah, and I think um, you know I say like Ron grew up in Fonda, Iowa, which is a very small town. And it's kind of the Tupelo of his story. You know, neither man were expected to be was expected to be the most famous person to emerge from those small towns. Yet they worked really hard and they persevered and probably had to work even harder than most to become who they became. These very successful people. And uh, Ron was always has a very respectful, professional relationship with Elvis. What I love about Ron, he's the first person I met in the Elvis world. And as you get into this research, you know, you meet the best people, but you also meet some people who have exaggerated their stories and yes. maybe stretch things a little bit. <laughs> and as a journalist, you have to watch for that. And because I met Ron first and he's just such a straight shooter, like his stories have never grown. You know, the integrity was evident from day one. He didn't try to say he was Elvis's best friend, which is lovely to have such honesty in that. Um, and he respects the man so much. He says, you know, I, I give talks and I tell people my story about Elvis because I want people to know that he was such a good, decent man. And that was my experience with him. Um, so there's something really incredible about that, too, that he takes the time to pass that on. Um, the, it was a respectful relationship. I think, again, there was a lot of honesty in it. So at one point, you know, Elvis, I think this describes it all or captures it, you know, because Elvis loved when people were honest with him. And at one point, uh, Elvis says, you know, Ron, we're about the same age. Elvis was born in 35. Ron was born in 39. So when you were coming up, you know, I was coming up in the 50s. What did you think about me back then? And Ron said, well, to be honest, I hated you, Elvis. <laughs> and Elvis was like, what? <laughs> and Ron says, yeah, I was taking out all these young, beautiful girls, you know, women on dates. And all they wanted to do was talk about Elvis Presley. And I got a little tired of that. <laughs> so, and then, of course, Elvis is like, you know, kind of laughs. He says, well, what do you think of me now? And, of course, Ron's like, oh, I think you're great now, you know. Um, so... Elvis loved that. Yeah. And I think they had that mutual respect and honesty. They just knew they weren't going to BS each other, right? And there's yeah. something really lovely in that for someone like Elvis, who people are constantly telling him what he wants to hear. Well, if you want to read more about it, the book is called Destined to Fly, uh, the story of pilot Ron Strauss. And the other book we were talking about is Destined to Die Young, written by Sally. Now, how can people get a hold of these books, Sally? Absolutely. And I would just add really quickly in Destined to Fly as an appendix is, Elvis's, is Ron's flight log. So it's a complete record of everywhere Elvis went pretty much from 75 to 77. So an incredible historical document. Uh, both books, you can learn more about them on ElvisAuthor.com. That's my website. Uh, all books are signed and unfortunately international shipping will be an issue for some people. I have a distributor in England, the strictlyelvis.net, uh, who you mentioned are great people and they they have the book as well, can save some on some international shipping. Um, it's on Amazon as an ebook outside of the United States. It's on Amazon in the United States. So if you start at my website, it'll kind of get you to all those places. Well, Sally, I could talk to you about Elvis all day, but thank you so much for your, for your time. It's been great to catch up and uh, we'll keep in touch. Uh, I'm sure there'll be some more Destined 2 books in the future. Absolutely. Thank you. I look forward to meeting in person one of these days. I'll see you in Memphis. Perfect. <laughs>